there's three things to keep your eyes out for as we plow forward in this series. The first is the futility of our idols. The second is the goodness of God's anger. And the last thing is the character of his love. Well, this party was known as the greatest party that never happened. I don't know if you've seen the show on Netflix yet. Fire Festival, the greatest party that never happened. But Anna and I watched it last week, or she watched it, and I couldn't stop paying attention to it. So I put down what I was doing and went and watched it. And it's the documentary of the Fire Festival, which was supposed to be a, a, like a luxury music festival that was supposed to start kind of a national buzz around this new entrepreneurial project. And the way they were going to get everybody in the country talking about it is by throwing just an epic party for the ages. This guy named Billy McFarlane, a young kind of millennial entrepreneur in Manhattan and Jarul, kind of collaborated to put this thing on. And so they, they, they leased an abandoned island that used to be owned by Pablo Escobar when he was running cocaine through the Bahamas. They, they somehow get Blink-182 and all these other huge artists to commit to coming and performing, they hired all these Instagram models, uh, some of the, the best-known Instagram models out there, and they all expenses paid, come down for a week, have a top-notch film crew, follow them around. They got drone footage, jet skis, snorkeling, everything, and they put all this footage together, and they begin this just masterful ad campaign on social media across the board. They only have a certain number of spots. It's a couple thousand tickets that they make available. You can rent a cottage. You can rent a tent. You can sleep on the beach. There's different experiences they're selling. And uh, a lot of these tickets are going for upwards of $250,000 to join the party of the decade on this island in the Bahamas with all these celebrities and influencers and these amazing bands. And so people in kind of that upper crust millennial Manhattan group start buying up these tickets. They go, they sell out in a few days. And here's the problem. As this festival approached, they're still blasting out all the advertising. 20 more days, 10 more days. Are you ready? Well, the documentary really tracks the lack of progress of getting the island pretty much redeveloped to receive a couple thousand people who have paid $250,000 each to be there. They were not ready. They were not able to get ready. How do, you, how do you all of a sudden have plumbing on an abandoned island where there was no plumbing? How do you get bathrooms there? How do you keep food, top-notch food, hot? How do you keep drinks cold? Where is Blink-182 going to plug in for power? What's the humidity going to do to the huge lights and the stage and the sound system? And so all of these top-notch event planners from around the nation are called to the scene, and they can't pull it together. They're trying everything to pull off the party of the decade before the airplanes start arriving with the guests. The guests eventually come. It's zero day. They arrive on the island. The planes land. And these yellow school buses meet all the people at the, at the landing strip to take them to a bar where fire employees just start kind of feeding them jello shots and other stuff just to distract them while last-minute preparations are made to try to tie up whatever loose ends they could. Eventually, dark's coming. People are like, where's our, where's our villa by the sea that we rented? Or where's our yacht? Or where's our cottage that we paid for? And they say, okay, well, we'll take you there. And these bus drivers drive them to the other side of the island 
which looks worse than a refugee camp. It's thousands of these white polyester tents. It had downpoured the night before they all arrived. The mattresses were soaked. There was mud everywhere. It wasn't even that great of a view. It was on a concrete pad by the ocean. And you can imagine people that paid a quarter of a million dollars to come to this thing are irate. They're in disbelief. Their jaws are literally dropped. And so long story short, thousands of people are stranded on an island and there is a, they're getting food and it's literally two pieces of bread with a piece of American cheese put on top. It's all the food they could pull together in time. They're miserable. They're trying to get off the island. They're demanding money back. And so they're stuck. They're miserable. The situation kind of spirals out of control. When people get back to New York in the months after the lawyers come around, they try to sue Billy McFarland, Ja Rule, all of the fire company. And there's no money to give. There's no money to be sued and to get. The company had gone bankrupt. And so these people are all out of their money. I thought of this story when I was thinking of this passage, when I was thinking of idolatry. I think it's a perfect subtext. If you had to write a book on idolatry, the subtitle would be The Greatest Parties That Never Happen. Promise the world, slickest advertising campaign you have ever laid eyes on, most attractive models you've ever seen, the biggest buzz you've ever heard. And we are all clamoring to just give away tons of our resources to get it. And until we step off the plane after we've already made the commitment, we don't see the writing on the wall. And we don't see the, wet, the letdown or the misery, but we're stuck in it. A lot of y'all grew up in the church. You've heard the word idol before. If you haven't, if that's not a word that kind of you makes sense to you. It's basically, it's a word that means anything that we human beings look to, to try to replicate God. Any created thing, any horizontal thing in this domain that we look to, to be a God for us, a place of refuge, comfort, vitality. And the, the, the scary thing about idolatry is it's, it's subconscious, it's subtle, it's second nature. None of those people who gave $250,000 to be at the party of the decade realized there was no way these people were going to be pull off what they said they were going to be able to pull off. It was knee-jerk, second nature. I want to be there. Here's my money. Here's my friends. Let's go. As it is with our pursuit of these things that we run to for refuge, there are little castles. When storms come, we run to our idols in a knee-jerk, second nature, almost automatic, reflexive way for refuge. They can't deliver. Even though these places, these idols are masters of advertising, there are no funds in the bank to possibly pay for what they promise. They don't have that power to revitalize a soul or to give meaning to a human being. And so we all end up landing in them, committing, moving towards them, spending precious resources on them. And they just can't do what they've promised. Ironically, it was the attendees of Fire Festival who invested all of the energy, all of the lifeblood into that concert. Nobody else was able to really do that, especially the organizers. And it's that way with idolatry, too, with our idols. This will get a little bit more concrete in a minute, but, but it's always you who has to supply the energy 
and the life and the vitality and the, and the commitment with your idols. Idols are deaf, they're dumb, they're inanimate. They have no life to give. And so we must supply all of the life and all of the energy. This is why they tire us out, chasing these lesser things, chasing these fake gods, these fabricated gods, always leave human beings exhausted, tired, empty, feeling like a piece of wood, just lifeless. And we feel let down and disappointed. Sometimes we feel very angry and we want our money back. And guess who we send the bill to? Not our idol, but to the one we think has ruined our party, God. That's the insidiousness of this. Psalm 115, verse 3 through 8, captures the insanity that idolatry brings that all of us struggle with in our hearts. I'll just read a few verses. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols, the nation's idols, our idols are silver and gold. They're the work of human hands. We made them. They have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. They have noses, but they don't smell. Hands, but don't feel. Feet, but don't walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make these idols become just like them. So do all who trust in them. That's a description of idols. We become like them. What are they like? Lifeless. We become lifeless. What are they like? Inanimate, immobilized, stuck where they are. What do we become like? Stuck where we are. Inanimate, immobile, without life in a sense. Isaiah 46, he says, if, if someone cries out to an idol, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Why? Because it can't. And that's why the fruit of idolatry is always the same. It's always loneliness, isolation, emptiness. We feel further from God and nearer to death. And this is where we see this in the passage. These sailors, all the way back from a couple of weeks ago, verse 5, when this storm that God sends first comes on these sailors, the text kind of refers to them as pagan sailors. They're not Christians. They don't know God. They don't worship the same God Jonah does. Trouble comes, and the first thing they do is hatch a strategy, a scheme. All hands on deck. Get to battle stations. Bail the water out. First place of refuge they run to. That doesn't work. So they go wake up Jonah and they start to try to diagnose the problem. Maybe this will help. Who are you? What have you done? Why has this evil come upon us? That doesn't do anything to lessen the storm. And so they start at this point. They finally cry uncle. They start to cry out to their gods. Each to his own God, the passage says. But nothing happens. The storm only gets louder. Apparently their gods can't hear or apparently their gods are what Psalm 115 describes them as. Deaf, dumb, lifeless, and impotent. And so at this point, they start really talking to Jonah. What is going on? What can we do that, we, that this storm might go away, but that we might be spared? They've tried all these other places of effort, self-effort, strategy, uh, just being more determined, more diligent. They've tried crying out to their tried and true familiar gods. This isn't working. And so they finally come to Jonah. Consider all the effort that they had invested before they ever hear Jonah say, I know the Lord. I know the God who is over the heavens, over land and sea. Consider how much effort they had already invested. Remember, we supply all the energy 
with these false places of refuge. They do nothing for us. We must carry all the weight. They had already bailed water. They had already gotten all hands on deck. They had already cried out to their gods. They had already dug their oars in harder and tried to just furiously row back towards the shore. And nothing was working. How tired, how terrified must they have been to realize nothing we're doing is working. David Foster Wallace, that chip I think of you, we were joking about how this makes it in at least every sermon series. But David Foster Wallace, uh, just an incredibly brilliant, insightful, atheist philosopher who unfortunately died about 10 years ago. But um, the man had stumbled upon some beautiful truths. He says this in a commencement address. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there actually is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much everything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if that is where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. You'll never, you'll need even more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship intellect, being seen as smart and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about all these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful in themselves, but that they're unconscious. These are default settings. Wallace summarizes everything that Jonah, this book, has already told us. Everything that scripture that God has told us about the cost and the consequence of trying to make anything he's made into him. The, the, high, the high human cost, the collateral damage of living in a world without a God, trying to build one all on our own. And we see this in the lives of the sailors and in the life of Jonah and in our lives as well. And all of their efforts to make the storms of life go away are futile. Here's the interesting turning point in the passage. The very first time the sailors do what the prophet of God tells them to do, everything changes. It's the first time in this narrative, we spent a month in this already, four weeks in this unfolding storm, this unfolding slow motion disaster. Now for the first time ever, there's a glimmer of hope. And it is when these sailors after plan A, B, C, D, E, F, G have all failed and nothing's working. And they finally listen to the prophet who, though he is running, though he is hard hearted, he is still a prophet of the true and living God. He still speaks on God's behalf. And he says, I am the reason for this storm. If you throw me in the sea, you'll be saved and the storm will be quieted. The first time the sailors do that. They, they eventually throw Jonah in the sea. They begin to pray to God. God, spare us. Don't let this man's blood be on our hands. Immediately, the seas quiet down. Just imagine, I mean, we're talking tsunami size waves. Imagine 
60 foot waves going to zero. That's a lot of time for that energy to dissipate. But they immediately notice an effect. Simply listening to this God. Entertaining the possibility that he's a truth teller. That maybe this does hold water. Maybe he is real. Maybe he is the only true and living God. Maybe he is sovereign. Maybe he is in control of this situation I'm stuck in right now. And immediately, exactly what he said would happen, happens. Peace is restored. Again, compare and contrast how much effort had they invested trying to seize control of chaos through all of their refuges, all of their idols. And it had no effect. They're exhausted. They've drained themselves of life and the storm still rages. And here they merely say the word. Lord. Spare us. It's never the amount of faith you have that saves you. It's never prayer in and of itself that has any power. It's always who you pray to. It's always who your faith is in. Weak faith in a strong object, Keller has always said, is infinitely better than strong faith in a weak object. You might have all the confidence in the world that your familiar paths of idolatry will bless you and protect you and give you life. You can have the strongest faith in the world, but it is a dead and weak object. It is futile. And you might have the weakest, tiniest, most fragile faith in this kind of a God. Just say the word and he can save and he can intervene. The sailors get the message without prompting, without being commanded to, without being arm twisted into praising God, thanking him, offering sacrifices, taking vows. They get the message. I had heard about you, but now I have seen you. I just, I just thought you were like, you know, you believe whatever makes you happy and I'll believe what I'm happy. Apparently that's not true. Apparently there are false gods and true gods. Apparently some gods can't do anything because they don't exist. And one does exist and can. The sailors immediately realize that. They left shore worshiping Marduk or Baal or some other god and they come home worshiping the one real god. Here's my questions to us before we quickly move on to the last two points. Are we still naively trusting in the advertising campaign of whatever these idolatries are that have our name on them? There are familiar places of refuge. At the end of a long, chaotic week, I run to a whole bag of potato chips, a whole carton of ice cream. I run to porn. I run to... I've got, to ha- I've, I've, I've got to be the center of attention of my friends. I run to another nap. Are you still believing the really slick ad campaign of dead idols that can only make you more dead? Or have you seen the writing on the wall? Do you know that they, they, these things have no funds? They simply don't have the life to give you what we ask of it. Or... Are you beginning to wake up to this? And you can say with Augustine, God has made me for himself and my heart is restless until it finds rest in him. Maybe that's not you. Maybe the question you need to hear is, is the God of the Bible still a local deity to you? Is he still a regional God to you as he was to these sailors? 
In the ancient Near East, they believed that each territory had a God. This will make sense to you if you've ever, ever read through the Old Testament. Everyone knew Israel. This is Yahweh's land. Well, what they thought they meant by that is, well, he's kind of the God of that land. Like Trump is president of this place and Theresa May's the prime minister of England. Each country had its own God. And then you had agricultural gods and fertility gods and rain gods. These sailors ask Jonah, who do you worship? And he says, the Lord who is over land and sea. That's called a merism grammatically. It's like if you say I was working night and day, it's implied you were working everything in between too. Jonah says, I know a God who is over the land and the sea and everything in between. I know the real God. And the question for us is, is the God of the Bible still a local deity to you? Have you built a wall between Christian life and life on campus and the two have never met? Is Jesus a local deity for spirituality, but he's not allowed to trespass into what you do on the weekends or what we do with our significant others? Or is he the God of the land and the sea and everything in between? And he is good over the land and the sea and everything in between. Is he a local deity or is he Jesus? Is he God? And I think maybe the last um, question is, is the God of the Bible perhaps still impersonal? lifeless. He is like the idols we worship to you. He has no life. You end up having to be the one who invests all the energy into the relationship. You feel like I'm always, it feels like I'm the only one who does anything in this relationship. You come to him and you've got to, We've got to drudge up emotions, drudge up feelings. We're always the one bringing sacrifices of energy and emotion, but we don't derive life, receive life, drink in life from him. If that's where you're at, I have a theory of why it is. It's counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense at the first of it. I think the reason that happens is that our only category for God is nice, polite, super sweet. We lack a category for a holy, sovereign, even angry God. That is, a, that is a weird counterintuitive thing to say that this might be your problem. This might be why the gospel is not just exploding with joy inside of you. It might be because we misunderstand God's anger. If you don't understand his anger, you can't understand his mercy. Here's how this works out. This has actually been an elephant in the room the past month. Some of you have been wondering, when's Ben going to talk about how angry this God seems? He calls Jonah, his prophet, to go to this land. Jonah runs the other way. Okay, I get it. We all run from God. But man, talk about flying off the handle. He throws like a Category 5 hurricane after these guys. They don't relent, and so the storm gets bigger. It gets harder. It gets worse. They still don't relent. And so it gets worse to the point that it almost takes their lives. And then if you're a freshman, we've been going through Romans this spring, and we've Romans 1, Romans 2, it's talking about God's wrath, his anger, his fury at wickedness and evil and injustice. And you say, what's the deal with this? Is God merciful and kind or is he angry? Maybe you grew up in a church that cut four-fifths of your Bible out and said, well, don't worry about the God of the Old Testament. He's different. What do we do with the anger of God? 
How does it fit into this narrative with Jonah? How does it fit into our lives? What do we do with the anger of God? Well, I think the first thing we've got to see about this is that God's anger is not a mark of evil. It is actually evidence of his love. It is evidence of him caring. It is evidence of him having skin in the game. It is proof that he's invested. I always struggled with Mark Richt being the head coach of UGA football. I love the man. I got to interview him one time for a class. Incredible human being, amazing Christian, great coach. But I had problems with him because 92,000 of us would be in Sanford Stadium and the refs would inevitably blow a call or some freshman would do some freshman thing. They would make some freshman mistake. They would ruin a series by like shooting off their mouth or something. And the whole stadium was about to light their hair on fire. We just kind of erupted. And Rick had a reputation. He was legendary for being unflappable. You couldn't ruffle the guy's feathers. So we would just be screaming and he would be there kind of here with his headset already strategizing the next few plays. And it got to the point where I'm like, do you even care? Show some emotion. Run out on that field and rip that ref's head off. Which happened about a week and a half ago at the NFC Championship with the Saints. Say it's one of the worst missed calls in NFL history. A pass interference with a few minutes left. All of the refs miss it happening right in front of their eyes. And Sean Payton levitated off the ground and fire came out of his mouth. And everybody loved it because they're like, he cares. I don't know what to do about the call, but I know Sean Payton cares about this game. I know he loves Saints football. I know he cares about the outcome. That's why he's angry. And I always wondered that. About Rick, God's anger at what is happening in the world is evidence that he cares. Eli Wiesel, the Holocaust survivor, famously says, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. You're darn right it is. And if God is one thing, it's not indifferent. His anger, by the way, is a little bit different than ours. We get angry too. And anger is not an inherently bad thing. Scripture says, be angry and do not sin. The Bible never calls us that the goal is to not be angry. The problem with us is what do we get angry about and why? Do we get angry about the things that God gets angry about? It's a whole nother message another day, but suffice it to say, I get angry about traffic jams or I get angry when I was in college, and if a roommate said a true statement, oh, Ben sleeps till 11 on the weekends, I was so angry. Not in a true sense of justice, but because I wanted to be seen as a productive guy who made great use of his weekends, even though I never did. Our anger often arises out of what we talked about the first few minutes, our idolatries, our false loves. These refuges that we take, when those are threatened, we get angry. If I love and care most about being comfortable, I get angry when somebody else touches the thermostat. That's what brings out our anger most of the time, not the right things. I'm not trying to get political here, but I got angry today. On January 22nd, the state legislature of New York legalized abortion up until a baby is in the birth canal. Yesterday, the, the governor in Virginia told a reporter, 
I think even the first few minutes after a baby is born, it's still the mother and her health care provider's decision whether to take the life of that child. You're supposed to get angry at that stuff because it is wrong. And you feel this justice coming out of you to fight for those without a voice, to speak up, to use power in life-giving ways. That is a taste of God's anger when he sees his world spinning out of control. He gives a rip about it and he gets angry. We should look at his anger and see his love. He is so invested. He will not back away. He will not do what those legislators did. There was a standing ovation when it passed. Unlike them, he cares and he will not walk away. His anger is redemptive. His anger drives him towards this world. And if you are in Jesus, his anger is diverted. This is the weird thing in our last point about the character of God's love. It's not just the goodness of his anger and how it demonstrates his love and care. It is the character of his love. Here is the amazing thing that the God of the Bible does. You won't find this in any other belief system, any other religion. I can save you time. He steps in the face of his own anger. If Jesus is God, as scripture claims, then he is angry with sin and evil and injustice, both inside of us and around us, systemic and individual. The question is, what is an angry God going to do? Will you be the terminus of his anger? He says, no. He says, I will step in. That laser dot of divine wrath and fury at terrible things will land on his chest. We see in Jonah the faintest, muddiest, most flawed glimmer of Jesus. And I know this is true because Jesus himself, as a young boy and a young man, as he is learning the scriptures, his own word. He reads Jonah and he says, that's me. He says in Matthew 12 to the Pharisees who say, hey, prove it that you're the son of God. Jesus says the only sign this generation will see is the sign of Jonah, who was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And he says, behold, there is a greater Jonah coming. Jonah finally, maybe for the first time in his life, starts to see other people on this boat in this storm. For the first time, he sees the sailors. He sees their desperation. He sees what he has gotten them into. And he says these words, my life for yours. Let's not, let's not whitewash this story. Jonah was in a messy place spiritually. He was heart of heart. This is not a heroic act where theme music starts playing. Jonah has mixed motives. I think Jonah was taking his life. Jonah had no expectation that God would save him through this fish. I think Jonah was boxed in, painted in a corner. He knew the only way these men survive is if I go into the sea. I think he fully expected to die. But he also knew I've got to go if they're going to survive. And so he looks at them and he says, my life for your life. For you to live, I have to die. And that's the character of God's love. It always has been. Keller says that the truest portrait of love is substitutionary love. John Stott says the concept of substitution, my life for yours, may be said to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. 
For the essence of sin is us substituting ourselves for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for you. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for us and puts himself where only we deserve to be. We claim prerogatives that belong to God alone. God accepts penalties that belong to us alone. This is the gospel. It's called the great exchange. It's called justification. It's called substitutionary atonement. Put whatever label on it you want. If you didn't come here tonight knowing what Christianity teaches, it is that Jesus will bear his own infinite wrath for you. What does it cost you? Nothing. It costs you looking to him and saying, I am an object of your wrath. I am complicit. I got blood on my hands. I am the problem on this earth, not the exception to the problem on this earth. Spare me. And you will find Jesus himself eagerly and willingly saying, my life for yours. My life for yours. I want to end with this story. It's from A Tale of Two Cities, Charles Dickens. At the end of his book, there's two characters, Charles Darnay and Sidney. And these men both look very, very similar to each other. And they both love the same woman, Lucy. Well, Lucy ends up marrying Charles, not Sidney. And so her and Charles get married. They have a kid. They're living happily. But this story is set in the French Revolution. Charles is an aristocrat, and he is eventually arrested and condemned to die on the guillotine. Towards the end of this story, uh, Sidney visits Charles in prison on the night before his execution, and he pleads with Charles to trade spaces with him. Charles refuses stoically. So Sidney drugs him and has him drugged out of the jail into a waiting wagon where he eventually flees to England with his wife and child for safety. On the night before the actual execution goes down, a seamstress in the cell next to Sidney, who is now in Charles's cell, about to die Charles's death. The seamstress looks at him and she realizes he's not Charles. And she says, are you dying for him? To which Sidney responds, and his wife and child. Did you ever know that this, it's not that God is like this, it's that this is like God. That's the character of his love. It is a willing, able substitution to step in your place and to absorb the penalty of what only is owing to us and to give the riches of what is only belonging to him. If God is just angry, The story ends with the last verse Seth read. Jonah is thrown into the sea, awaiting being swallowed by the jaws of God's justice. Next week, we see there's more to the story. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you're angry. If we've never thought about that before, I pray that you would just break the rust off the gears of our heart. Let us see you as infinitely dimensional, as a complex infinite, beautifully complicated Messiah. We thank you that your anger has not led you to run away from us, but it has actually led you to run towards us.
And we thank you most of all that we do not have to be the ones who bear your anger, but you step into it on the cross for us freely. I can't do anything with my words. They're pitifully weak, but you're a savior. So save us. And if we've been saved, remind us. I ask this in your name. Amen.